on his deathbed, the way Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, I can hear them coming. He sat straight up in bed and asked, Don't you hear them? This is my coronation day. I can see the chariots. I'm ready to board. February 17, 1546, the reformer Martin Luther lay down and closed his eyes for the last time. His last thought was, Father, into thy hands I commend myself. And he passed into eternity. The great missionary to the Native Americans, David Bernard, on his deathbed said, I'm going into eternity. And it is sweet to me to think of eternity. The final words that one utters before their passing are very significant. You can probably think of many. I'll never forget my father sitting on the edge of the bed holding my mother's hand and saying, Myrtle, it's been a good life. And in moments he was gone. The scripture gives great prominence to the last words of God's children. There's an entirely three whole chapters in Genesis afforded to the patriarch Jacob before he passed away. Three chapters is significant, but Moses got a whole book. The whole book of Deuteronomy is the final words of Moses to the people of Israel. Joshua, chapters 22, 23, and 24, before he died. The Apostle Paul thought he was going to die, and in Acts chapter 20, and then writing a letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy, he wrote those letters. What we're in approaching this morning in our study of the Gospel of John is the last words of Jesus. All other last words pale. We have before us chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 filled with the kind and helpful instruction of our Lord and Savior to his disciples. And by the gift of the Spirit and the progression of revelation, we get to receive them ourselves as we read and as we study. It's filled with interaction with these men questions, further comments, Jesus amplifying what he said. But if you were to take these chapters, 13 to 16 inclusive, you would find that it's very, very, very simple. Jesus says to his disciples, I am now glorified and I'll be departing. And then he says to that announcement, three promises. He says are three words of comfort. He says, first of all, I'll go to prepare a place for you. And secondly, he says, rejoice because I'm leaving myself in the form of the Holy Spirit that will live with you forever. That's the sum of these chapters, but they're filled with questions and answers by our Savior. They're filled with 
explanation, further explanation. Today, we're just going to look at his announcement that he's departing. We're just going to look at the fact that uh, he tells them that, as he has so many times, but that he's going to be glorified and departing. And so my text is John chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 31 to 35. John 13, 31 to 35. gone out, that is, he's speaking of Judas, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I will also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Spirit of the living God, we would ask you to cause these few verses in this incredible book within your indescribable scriptures to come alive and to speak to our hearts, transform the way we think and behave, actively work in our midst, and give us ears to hear and hearts to believe and wills to obey. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to bring two points. The first I've called the glory of the Son of Man and the delight of the redeemed. I, I add that phrase, the delight of the redeemed, because we will see in a moment that all through Scripture, the entire history of mankind and the heart of every true child of God has been uh, waiting for this time. This is the delight of the nations being revealed to us. Jesus in all his glory. This day of glorification has been on the horizon for years. And as the ministry of Christ, the public ministry of Christ came to an end, as he uh, raised Lazarus from the dead, in verse, chapter 12, verse 23, he said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That word glorified means that he will be seen in all his radiant beauty. It means that the sum and total of all his perfections will be on display. Up until this point, people saw in part but you need to understand that Jesus realized that on the cross and the work of sacrifice that he will do, there's something about that that puts the entire attributes of God on display and he will be glorified. 
Previously, you read several times, my hour has not come. My hour has not come. But now he says, my hour has come. My hour has come. This is what all history has been heading towards this very moment. He says, now is the Son of Man glorified. This is Christ's favorite title for himself, favorite name of himself. He uses it more than anything else. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. You'll recall that at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve sinned, God promised a man would come and defeat Satan. Offspring of the woman. From that point in history on, for thousands of years, mankind has been looking for this man, this particular man. Perhaps they thought it was Abel, but it wasn't. Perhaps it was Seth, but it wasn't. Maybe it was Noah, but no, it wasn't Noah. Maybe it was Abraham, but it wasn't Abraham. No, it was Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus the Christ. He was the promised Son who would rule and reign as a man over all God's creation. He was the one that would come from the Davidic line, the lineage of David. This was the Messiah. This was the man that would be exalted, as Daniel 7 points out. This is the man that would be exalted, and he would have dominion and power over all things. His moment had arrived. Jesus says, now the Son of Man is going to be glorified. And did you notice he said, at once... Just think of this. We're reading this and we, we labor through and we, we, we pull the truths and the nuggets of gold from this passage. But just think of it. Jesus is saying this and within 24 hours he is going to be glorified. He's anticipating it. There would be no more waiting. No more past tense. No more prophecies. No more types and shadows. No more prayerful anticipation. Remember Anna in the temple that was anticipating? She would pray all night anticipating. No more. The time has arrived. It's happening now. As we're looking in history it's happening now. Jesus is being glorified. The Son of Man is being put on display in all His divine glory. And it's going to happen at the cross. It's going to happen at the most unusual place. This is the moment, brothers and sisters, that the entire Old Testament is heading towards. think of that. This is the moment where the entire canon of the Old Testament 
is leading us to this moment when Jesus says, I will now be glorified. Every event in history up to this point, every event in history up to this point, every act of evil and every act of righteousness has been heading towards this point. Every cataclysmic act or any minor little detail has been heading to this point. Every baby that was born, every conception, every birth, every child, every family, every clan, every nation under the sovereignty of God has been directed by God to this point when Jesus Christ would be glorified. This is, as some would say, the crux of human history. We have now reached the end point, the crossroad. This is the time when the Son of Man will be glorified. And notice the, 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 the reference to the mystery of the Trinity here. God is glorified in Him. God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. There's a sense where there's a mutual glorification happening. Why? Because the divine God in all His triune beauty and majesty is going to be put on display for the whole world to see. It's just not Christ as an individual being glorified. It's God the Father in Christ. It's Christ in the Father. There is a mutuality and an interconnectedness that is, that is beyond explanation and beyond, what, beyond our understanding. And yet there we have on display the majesty and glory of the triune God on display for the world. And all human history has moved us to this point. Now the Son of Man is going to be glorified at once. The cross would become the supreme glory of God because it's there that this man that the whole world has been looking for stands before a watching world and says, I have obeyed God with perfection. No one else has been able to say that. I have done the will of my Father. Seth couldn't say that. Abraham couldn't say that. Moses couldn't say that. David couldn't say that. All these, these human rulers that the world was looking for, anticipating, they couldn't say that. Only Jesus Christ could say at the moment of his departure, I have done the will of my Father completely. His resurrection would become the means by which God the Father vindicates his death and the Father says of the Son, your death is sufficient. Your sacrifice is enough. There need, no more, there need not be any more sacrifices. You have paid once and for all for the sin of those who would put their trust in you. Nothing else has to be done. His ascension will restore Jesus back to that place in his high priestly prayer. When we get there, we'll see that his heart is longing to be with the Father. Oh, that I can enjoy the glory that I had once with you before I came into this world. 
the glory that he experienced is beyond human words and the cross and the, the, his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension bring him back to that place where he is at the Father's right hand. But now he is at the right hand of the Father as the perfect man and the perfect God in one. The incarnate Savior. Now in heaven resides the perfect man and the perfect God in one. Now the moment has arrived for the Father to be glorified in the Son and the Son to be glorified in the Father. My words cannot convey, I don't think, adequately this moment. This is the moment of history. Jesus looks at these men, these hand-picked men. They have just gone through a cleansing. Their group has been cleansed. The traitor has left. And now he looks at these men. He's walked with them for three years. They know him inside and out. He knows them. They've been through Judea, Galilee, even into Samaria. What are they going to do? Jesus says, I'm going where you can't come. Verse 33. What are they going to do? What are we supposed to do? They might be asking. And then Christ gives them the answer. Notice verse 34. He announces his departure and then immediately says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. You might be saying, what's new about that? I mean, you can go all the way back to Leviticus. You can go back to the law of Moses. We're told throughout the scriptures that we're to express love for one another. What's new about that? Well, he's going to develop this further in chapters 14 and 15. As Pastor Josh read, you, you remember in chapter 15, he really unpacks this idea. But for now, he's just he's giving this announcement. He's laying it out. You are to love one another. Notice the tone in which he speaks to them. Notice the tone. Little children, verse 33. I don't want you to miss this. Use the Greek word, technia. It's a word particularly used of a father to children. It's the way a daddy would gather his children and speak to them. My little children. I find that so fascinating because Jesus is certainly the creator of these disciples, isn't he? He's certainly their judge. He's, he's their God. He's to be worshipped. He's their prophet. He's their savior. But now he addresses these men as is their father. I could be wrong, but the best I've been able to come at is that this is the first time Jesus ever addressed these men, his disciples, his father. My little children. I don't think this is, would be unusual for us, do you? 
Can't you imagine a daddy going away? Maybe not dying, but maybe going away on a trip, going, to, going away for a few weeks working. Would it not be very normal for daddy to gather the children and say, I'm going away. Now love one another. <laughs> and don't pick on your mom. There's words to that effect. Love one another. But then he adds a different standard. Jesus does. Love one another as I have loved you. We have been taught in the Bible that we're to love one another as we want to be loved. We are taught in the Bible to love one another as we love ourselves. That standard now has been set aside. There's a whole new standard for the disciples of the Lord Jesus now. The standard has changed. He says, love one another as I have loved you. This is a father speaking to his children. He's already said, I have, John has already written that he has loved them to the end. Now Jesus says, you love one another the way I love you. That's the standard of love within the Christian church. That's the, that's the mark. This is daddy talking to his family. There's a new family before us. There's a, a new messianic community. There's a, there's a church now sitting here. There's the body of Christ. These men are, are the formation of the body of Christ. They're to love one another as Jesus loved them. What's Jesus saying to them? Think of this. He's saying, I'm going away, but you be me to them. Do you see that? I'm not going to be here. My, see, the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit coming is, not, is, not, is just on the horizon. We're, we've already read it. We understand that. But these men didn't. They're sitting there. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. I'm going away, so Peter, you be Jesus to Thomas because I'm not here. Do you see that? Do you see the standard? Be me to one another, in other words, Jesus is saying. And then he gives them a reason. Why should you do that? In verse 35, he gives the reason. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The standard is that the church is to love each other as Christ loved us. And this then becomes the identifying mark of the church to a watching world. Many of us are old enough to sing of that old song, I think, from the 60s. You know, when hippies were turning to Christ and they'll know we are Christians by our love. You'll notice it doesn't say they, they will know we are Christians by our wonderful buildings. 
It doesn't say they, know, they will know we're Christians by our weekly procession to this church every Sunday. That's how we know you're a Christian. It doesn't say they will know we are Christians by our very sober and serious way that we conduct ourselves as religious people. It doesn't say that they will know we're Christians by the stimulating music we enjoy. No, they will know we are Christians by our love, a love whereby the standard is the same love Jesus loved the disciples. I spoke of my dad in the introduction, and one of the great legacies that I received from my father was a library of books that I treasure. And many of the books are written by a personal friend of my father who was ministering in Scotland at the time, a man by the name of Dr. G. Campbell Morgan. He died at the end of the Second War, but in one of his books on this passage, he wrote these words. I think they're important to quote and share with you. The measure in which Christian people fail in love to each other is the measure in which the world does not believe in them or their Christianity. It is the final test of discipleship according to Jesus. Campbell Morgan puts it in the negative. The amount we do not love one another as Christ loves us is, this, is of the same proportion that the world does not believe in the Christian faith. Now, I admit I'm absolutely convicted as an individual by that statement. I mean, this challenges the very core of our lifestyle. Like, this disturbs our whole lifestyle if we believe this that Jesus is teaching. This is mind-blowing. This is world-rocking. Rock, this, is, this is trauma. This is trauma. To stop and think that we are called to love one another the way Jesus loved us. And then add to that the, the, the stress, the guilt, the pressure that the way we love one another will make our message plausible and believable to the world. If we don't love one another the way Christ loved the church, the world will not believe us. Please don't be offended by these words, but I'll tell you something. It's a lot easier to go through the community and hand out tracts. It's, it's not that hard. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to debate with your neighbors and friends and those at the store or the coffee shop on the existence of God, on, on the... The, the creation or other aspects of the Christian faith that people like to talk. That's pretty easy to sit there and talk about these things. It's even fairly easy to take specialized training in apologetics and, and conduct seminars or, or go on the Veritas Forum and debate great, great 
philosophers and academics around the world. That's really not that hard to do that if you've had the training. I'll tell you what's hard. Is what's hard is for me to love you the way Jesus loves me. I ask myself the question, why is it so hard? Let me just share some thoughts. I think it's difficult to love one another as Christ loved us. Because it's even difficult to do that with people we love. Good, a few heads popped up. That caught your attention. It's difficult to love people the way Christ loved us because even in the case where we love someone, it's hard to love them the way Christ loved them. And if you have been able to follow that kind of gibberish out of my mouth, just think of your spouse. I hope you're here today loving your spouse. And you love your spouse. But try loving them the way Jesus loved you. And suddenly you'll see how... See, it's difficult to love people the way Christ loved us because even when it's someone you love, it's hard to do that. It's hard to ramp it up to the next notch. It's difficult to love one another as Christ loved us because often we just don't feel like it. And we are living a generation of feelings. We do so much on our feelings. We are motivated and we move by our feelings. Go to a Bible study group. And the leader will ask you, how do you feel about that text? I promise you it'll come up. I, or I feel that it says this. <laughs> we get up when we feel like it, and we go to work when we feel like it, and we do this when we feel... We're, we're a feelings-operated society. And quite frankly, and I'm guilty, guilty number one here, I, I don't feel like loving my wife as Christ loved me, and I don't feel always like loving you. Shocker of shocks. And if you were honest, you'd say the same to me. It's difficult to love one another because just, it's difficult to love one another as Christ did, even with the people we love. It's difficult to love one another as Christ did because we're driven by our feelings Thirdly, it's difficult to love one another as Christ does because we have a very impoverished view of love. Guaranteed, in most audiences, if I said you are to love one another, immediately your mind is going to things like I have to be tolerant, I have to be permissive, I have to be fuzzy, I have to be mushy, I have to be inclusive, and we forget that love is also a love that tells the truth, that admonishes and warns and says difficult things. We don't understand love, so how are we going to love the way Jesus loved? When was the last time you said to a religious bigot, 
that there were whited sepulchers and their breath smelled like serpents' pits. From the mouth of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I don't want to get one-sided on this, but you see, the church does not understand how Jesus loved. When was the last time you said to someone who said something unbiblical, and you turned to them and said, Get thee behind him, Satan. Love is tolerant. Love is loving and sweet and kind. Oh, it's full of that. But love also has some aspects to it that make it very difficult to love as Jesus loved. Personally, I think it's difficult to love as Jesus loved because many times in, a, in any given day, I really do love myself more than anybody else. I suggest to you one other final reason why it's difficult to love one another as Jesus loved us. And that is because you can't. You can't. You see, in chapter 15 that Pastor Joss read for us, Jesus is unpacking this love, and he calls it fruit. He calls it spiritual fruit. The love that he expects from his, from his disciples, he calls spiritual fruit. That's the context. It's love. And then he says these words in verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. In other words, he's the one that loves much. And then he says these words. For apart from me you can do nothing. Beloved, it is hard for me and you to love one another as Christ loved the church because it's impossible to do. It can only be done in Christ. It can only be done for those who remain part of the, the vine. Those who are drawing nourishment from the vine. When the life of the vine Jesus is being poured into us. That's the only possible way we could fulfill this command. It's something you, we can only do if we're born of the Spirit. It's something we can only do if we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's something we can only do if we're filled with with the Spirit. It's something we can only do if we're living by the power He gives. And it's something we can only do if we're doing it in a way that He gets the glory. You see, that's why it's so difficult to love one another as Christ loved us because He wants the glory, not us. In other words, we've gone full circle in this little passage. Jesus says, I am now approaching 
the hour of my glorifications. Now go love one another as I have loved you. And he didn't say it there, but the New Testament implies it all through. Now do it in a way that I get the glory. You see, for Jesus, it's all about the glory. And it's very hard for us to love one another in a way for all the reasons I've given, but we must do it in a way where he gets glorified, not us. We must do it in a way where you look at me having felt the love of Christ from me to you and you say, I know Jim McClellan, he can't do that. Somebody greater is working in his life than him. And notice this. The only thing that can save an unbeliever is to see the glory of God. Do you see how this, this passage is all working together? I'm being glorified. Go love one another so that I get the glory. People will know that you're my disciples if, if you love one another because they see my glory. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that when, when unbelievers see the glory of God in the face of Christ, their hearts are open and the light comes in. And now in this passage, we have all this working together. I'm going to be glorified. Love one another as, as I have loved you. People will know you're my disciples if you do that. Why? Because you see the glory of God in the midst of the church. They won't see our good works. They won't see our merits. They won't see our efforts. They see God glorified and on display. And to wrap this up, to wrap this up, let's hear what Peter has to say. Because Peter's going to wrap this whole thing up and put it in a package for you and I this morning. So let me say it clearly. Finally, turn to 1 Peter. Chapter 4. This, friends, I believe is the application. Jesus gave his, these words when the end of time was near for him. But it could be this morning there's an end of time for some of us. And in a general way, it's true of everyone. So Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as God's stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything 
God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Serve one another in the strength that God gives so that he gets the glory. And outsiders will see and they'll be amazed. Would you stand with me as I share with you the benediction for this day and as we move into our Sunday school program? 1 John chapter 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now watch this. Little children. Technia. Little children. That's not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. God bless you. You're dismissed.